Hello and welcome to the menu Monocle Radio's food and drink program. I am Markus Hippi. This week we head to Berlin. The German capital's gentrification has been dramatic and while it certainly hasn't been without its problems, one of the benefits is that the food in the city has never been as good as it is now. In the next 30 minutes we visit some of Berlin's top destinations. They include Nobelhart und Schmutzig, a restaurant that pioneers the use of ingredients from the Berlin region. They think, okay, that's really good tomatoes and we are like here in Berlin and not in the south of Italy. We have our friend Nicola, he's Italian from the south and he thinks the best tomato dish in the world he has eaten was at Nobelhand and Schmutzig. We'll also hear from Dalat Kambu, who opened the city's best Thai restaurant, Kindi. When we first got the star, we got people come here and they said, I go to every Michelin star restaurant. Your restaurant is not worthy. I'm like, um, why? You don't have tablecloth, you don't have a mousse bouche, you don't have people like wear dress in uniform I'm like it's 2020 something why do we need that and as it's Berlin in question we do of course have to talk about great brunches too all that here on the menu on Monocle Radio One of Berlin's most famous restaurants is Nobelhart und Schmutzig. Opened in 2015, it gained international attention for the way it put spotlight on local ingredients, something that the capital did not have much tradition with earlier. Nobelhart und Schmutzig received a Michelin star almost straight after it had opened, and it's still a place not to be missed if you end up in the city. Just be prepared to stay away from your phone as the restaurant actively encourages its diners to focus on food and each other rather than on their mobile devices. Nobelhart und Schmutzig was launched by Billy Wagner and Misha Schäfer and it is Billy I caught up with at his restaurant. First of all, you have to make to get the bigger picture. You know, um, in most cities of the world you have a, an area surrounded where you get the groceries from. So when you are in Paris, you get the stuff from around Paris. Here in Berlin, until 1990, it was quite isolated because of the GDR, because of the agriculture which was done by this. So most of the stuff, when when we started in 2015, um, most of the ingredients we are using now weren't there because we started with people to create certain ingredients. And at the end, it's quite simple ingredients. It's tomato, it's bell pepper, it's uh, chickens, it's uh, certain herbs in a certain quality, etc., asparagus. These were all products which were there before, but with our approach now, We believe in a in a different quality level. If it is strawberries or raspberries, etc., we have it now in much better quality for a much higher price because most of the um, ingredients which uh, were used before they were used for different purposes. So for selling them in the supermarket, and obviously with a supermarket you have a different approach. For instance, one example. You in the supermarket you need strawberries who at least hold up for seven days, and we don't need this because we have direct uh, contact, direct trade with a person, and for us it's okay when it's when it's when it's only three days. But in these three days you have an amazing quality of flavor, 
And obviously, if you uh, take the focus on uh, different uh, aspects of quality, like that, it, it, that the logistic is more important than the quality of the product itself, you change obviously the product. And we change the way of how we deal with the people. So this is the first thing of what we uh, did to get relationship with certain people and to create certain products. And at the same time, when people come to the restaurant, they uh, don't, I, I personally think they don't get crazy unusual ingredients, but they get ingredients in an extremely well-made way and in a shape where they think, okay, that's really good tomatoes. And we are like here in Berlin and not in the south of Italy. So uh, we have our friend Nicola. He is Italian from the south and he thinks the best tomato dish in the world he has eaten was at Nobelhand and Schmutzig. You know, these kind of, that's what we're aiming for. And Micha, head chef of Nobelhand and Schmutzig, tries not to overcook the ingredients to point them out as as simple and clean as possible. Tell me about some of your favorite dishes. Tell me more about the tomato dish, for example. I'm curious about what you serve over here. So the dishes at the end, it's dried tomatoes, uh, to- tomatoes, and then there's an onions broth uh, with on, on the side, and then we put a couple of uh, fresh sliced onions on top, and then there comes some linseed daughter oil as a couple of drops on top. So the linseed daughter gives a really interesting flavor to it, what most people don't know. You know, when you go to Italy, you would probably use an olive oil and you have the flavor when you put a little bit of olive oil. But the linseed gives also an interesting flavor, which maybe stands a little bit more for us. And another interesting combination is, for instance, we're going to get now into the asparagus season here in Germany, is that when uh, Micha does asparagus, um, we get them from one special person. It's Rainer. And he doesn't work with foil. He harvests as least as possible so that the aroma of the asparagus is really sweet and for instance we use them with herbs for instance from the region obviously and with um, black currant wood oil for instance so we take rapeseed oil uh, infuse the um, uh, rapeseed oil on 70 degrees with the wood from from the black currant bush and we put this wood inside the oil and cook it for 24 hours on 70 degrees. So it's now a recipe which you can do easily at home if you have a bush in your garden or anything. So, and we use this and then we give a flavor which is totally regional but give it on, the, on top of the, the asparagus and you have a certain uniqueness from the area. What's your relationship with old classic recipes from this part of Germany? Did you look into the history, how to use those ingredients, or have you been looking at getting influences from other parts of the world? This is not a recipe from back then. It's Back then, people... Misha had one time the opportunity to um, make a cookbook with two other chefs, with people from the elderly home. And uh, they were going to an elderly home and spend two or three days with uh, the old ladies there and check them out of like, what were they cooking when they were young or younger, etc. And they were like all 80, 90, etc. And they were saying most of the stuff what they were cooking, there was no one foraging, you know. Some of them had a garden because they had one, but some of them were in Berlin and they didn't have a garden because they it doesn't have a garden. So they were getting stuff from the grocery store or from the market, or but usually from the supermarket at the end. So the, poor, the, the, the style of cooking was quite poor and very, very simple. 
when they remembered to their uh, to their when they were really young, so when their grandparents or their parents were cooking, at the end, German cooking was always driven about the money issue, about having no availability. You know, you have to imagine after World War II, from the years 1945, 6, 7, 8, there were strong winters and people had a lot of problems in getting enough food. So people were starving at that point, you know. And then obviously the, the situation in World War II was not, you know, there was food was regulated with certain numbers, uh, with with little um, vouchers, vouchers, correct, etc. So and before that, you know, you, you always had all these, these different crises. So the, the food was always... Um, Something would not is we don't have the tradition like Italians or French in in fine dining and cooking long hours in in doing all that. So it was a different approach, I would say. One nice example of what you've been doing recently is obviously considering that people may be thinking more about how they spend their money and also to make this place a bit more accessible is that you have launched something special for Wednesday evenings, for example. The Wednesday evenings was quite slow, and we had available um, seats and at the same time if we have no guests we also have no tip uh, part of the, the income from our staff is tip at the end and if there are no guests I cannot they don't have money to spend on their private life so I said okay we need to um, adjust the Wednesday a little bit so let's do a program where we bring something more accessible to them so which means it's about the price at the end you know restaurant is pricey if you charge 175 plus on Fridays and Saturday 200 for the whole menu. But now we give them opportunity that they come in for a schnitzel, for instance. Uh, schnitzel Wednesdays. Schnitzel Wednesdays. We call it actually fat schnitzel Wednesday because it's a different cut. It's cut it with the fat. The fat is amazing quality. And then we serve this with a mayonnaise made out of the fat plus... Uh, which is unripe grape juice. So it's a really nice, interesting thing. People can come in only for that dish, but usually people take a little bit more on the side. And uh, we, at the end, people spending maybe 100 euros or maybe 150 euros together or for one, depends on how much they drink. But it's not the, the 300 to 400 euros, what they also can spend on a, on a Friday evening, etc. Billy Wagner, co-founder of Berlin's Nobelhart und Schmutzig there. Berlin has become more international over the years, which has been reflected also in the city's restaurant scene. Probably the best place for contemporary Thai food in the city is a restaurant called Kindi. It was opened by Dalat Kambu. Born in Austin and raised in Bangkok, she was working in New York before relocating to Berlin to launch the restaurant. I spoke to her and she began by explaining how the story of Kindi began. Uh, I was in New York. I, I needed a change and uh, me and my mentor Rick Ritravanicha sort of like start cooking together he mentor a lot of like young kids you know like artists scientists blah 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 and then we decided we should look for a restaurant and then we start cooking and traveling and then we um, ran into uh, Stefan Lanvier who owned the Grill Royal Group and he also an art collector so when he heard Rick Rit names and the idea of restaurant he said why don't we do it together in Berlin and a year later I move here how easy was it to open a restaurant over here Honestly, I look back, I have a, a few partners and two of them are locals and that makes it a lot easier. But in general, it's very difficult because the um, regulations, German bureaucratic uh, 
uh, systems and all this thing. Apart from all my friends, it's really really difficult. Luckily, I you know have locals help, so that's really really helpful and make things a lot faster. What I found challenging is that um, the perception of Thai food in Europe, particularly in Germany, is quite sad. What do you mean? Because you know, like all these people went to Thailand for a holiday, and usually, you know, they go to tourist place, low cost holiday tourist spots, you know, and that's fine. Because Thai food is very cheap. You go to Thailand with a currency, and you know, we're not gonna get into the reason behind it. But uh, it's you know, we go to Thailand as a low cost holiday, you know, and when you go to Thailand, most likely you don't eat what I eat. The minute that the person cooks in your face on the market, they're not gonna make the same flavors that I do for you. And they kind of assume that that experience is real, and that experience is um, legit and universally correct. And then, um, yeah, when I come to eat my food, they're just like, "This is not Thai food." I'm like, "Excuse me, <laughs> Thai food has mango, not kohlrabi." And I'm like, um, "It doesn't work like that." You know, when I make a yam, which is like a Thai salad, I use kohlrabi instead of apples or instead of papaya. And um, you know, Thai people eat it and like, oh, it tastes like home. And then all this, you know, non-Thai Western, mostly white people, said it's not Thai food. So it was years and years of struggle. But now you have a Michelin star, and and your restaurant has got a lot of recognition and appreciation. What is your relationship with authenticity when you think about Thai food? And and you still use German ingredients. How does that combination work? So we, when it comes to authenticity, right? I have Thai people come back to the restaurant quite often, and as long as they say it brings them home, that is my authenticity. So when it comes to curry plates and all the flavors, the sauces, we do it, you know, the way we do it in Thailand. We still use um, fish sauce from Thailand, you know. Um, we still use palm sugar from Thailand, Thai basil and stuff. Of course, in summer we can get Thai basil. Now they started to grow here, so we use them here. But the meat, fish, vegetables, always locally sourced and very ethically thoughtful. Um, so, we always check with the uh, with the suppliers how uh, the fish caught. You know how were they caught and blah 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 da da da. You know, we make sure we don't use like thawing, for example, um, process. We don't do that. So you know, hence we have like we try with different fish as well. So when you combine quality and ethical, you know, we only left with one supplier right now that we can get fish from, and there's like. 12 ingredients the last month like 12 items available as products and we work with that and then people come here and people don't understand they get angry and they're like why don't you have sea bass I'm like well it's not in season <laughs> why don't you have you know salmon I'm like well because it's fuck for the world to eat salmon you have to be careful you see it's farm they have you know all the bacteria um, the antibiotics if it's not farm you're still supporting people to eat one type of fish where you know it's too much like fish diversity is quite important and this is something people don't think about it we have enough fish to eat we just have to eat different kind of fish when you think about the evolution of this restaurant how much how much has changed over the years hmm. i would say that like you know there were time that i try the first years you know i my my mission here always been that i want to prove to the western world that thai food you know doesn't have to be the cheap fast shit Thai food that they know you know I, I mean I go to those imbits sometimes but when they come the Thai people when they see me like oh hi well let me make it extra for you and then make it different than they sell you know and the reality it, it's, it's time consuming it's labor in- intensive and in order for you to do that um, you need to pay the money for that so if you go expect to eat lunch for 8 euros 
or six euro when I first came here. They want to pay lunch for five euros, and now maybe eight to twelve, you know, or fifteen uh, maximum. How is that gonna pay for the person to p- do it properly, right? And here at Kindy, we first of all, we don't have anyone work fifteen hours. You know how the chef work people work twelve hours, fifteen hours, sixteen hours, and they're proud of it. We don't do that because I've seen it that people get burned out. People have chronic ill in their body. Women cannot, you know, a lot of women just already like mentally like fuck from this like patriarchal society and patriarchal industry, um, and they have to you know try to prove to the man that they are physically as strong, you know, and we just don't do it here. Plus, it's illegal in Germany. You, it's super illegal here. I have to ask. You are one of the. I think it's less than 10 female Michelin star chefs in Germany at the moment. What are your thoughts about how conservative Berlin is, for example, when you think about the restaurant industry and you think about what's going on over here? Well, and you compare it to places like New York and London. Where is Berlin? Berlin is not Germany. And Germany, you know, is quite conservative. And I find it very sad that um, there's less than 10 restaurants in Berlin that I could go eat. Yeah, and um, the rest, I just don't really like it. And if you look at the Michelin guy for years, I, I really, honestly, I don't even, it's not that I don't care, but I just don't really look at the list or anything just because for years you can see that it's always the same. The food is the same. They will have coriander oil, or basil oil, some green oil. They have some foam. They have some pickle, some da da da. Like it just, it can be Japanese, Indian, Taiwanese. You put them together, it's the same. And it's I, so for me, I just find that that you know, like in for example, like in Thailand, you know, we have a street food one Michelin star. She doesn't serve wine. She only have beer. You know, Jeffy, and she's amazing. And you go see her and her craft and how she walk it every day. You know. Um, but then at the same time, you have Boland, uh, amazing Thai restaurant, so perfectly well done. Everything just amazing in terms of flavor profile and stuff like that. They only got one star in the beginning. But Suring, a German fine dining in Thailand, got two stars. And everyone in the food world that I know was just like, what the hell? Does the judge really know what they're doing? How can you give Bolan one? And eventually, I think they got two, you know, when she closed the restaurant now, blah, blah, blah. So back to Berlin, yeah, um, there's a cool kids doing, and people doing cool things. Are they um, a part of Michelin guy? Absolutely not. It's completely different things, you know. I see more interesting restaurants coming out in Berlin, which is cool and great, and they seem to, like, finally catching up with, like, you know, the progressive or modern cuisine around the world, but they don't do those foam and training and all this thing, you know. I mean, it's just the reality. And, you know, when we first got the star, we got people come here and they said, I go to every Michelin star restaurant. Your restaurant is not worthy. I'm like, um, why? You don't have tablecloth. You don't have a moose bouche. You don't have people, like, dressed in uniform. I'm like, it's 2020-something. Why do we need that? Like, I just don't understand that. And we that's the most negative, um, you know, sort of repeat um, feedback that we get, you know. Um, or like, yeah, like, you know, like, oh, like, you don't have, um, for some, why don't you have fresh flowers every day? I'm like, because it's unsustainable and it's expensive and we are at different restaurants, so we have artwork, you know. Um, 
So in that sense, I think yeah, it hasn't really. There are a group of people that hasn't really catch up to the world. Dalat Kambu, head chef of Kindi Restaurant. There, you are listening to the menu on Monocle Radio. Let's take a quick break from Berlin now. Here is Monocle's Monica Lillis with the week's food and drink headlines. This week, the Balearic Islands government called an urgent meeting with airline Ryanair and the local pastry makers association after customers weren't allowed to bring cakes on board. A spat erupted after two passengers at Palma de Mallorca Airport tried to each carry an insimada, a local Mallorcan pastry, onto the plane. The airline claimed it exceeded their cabin baggage limit and demanded an additional 45 euros to bring them on board, at which point the passengers abandoned them. The Balearic's tourism minister, Iago Negrula, said the meeting was called to defend local produce and avoid any kind of discrimination. Scientists in the UK are developing peas that are tasteless in order to produce a more planet-friendly alternative to importing soybeans. The UK imports 4 million tonnes of soya a year for food and animal feed, with half a million tonnes used for vegan and vegetarian foods. However, most of it comes from South America, where soya production has been linked to the destruction of rainforests. Much like soya, the flavourless peas will be high in protein and easy to incorporate into vegan dishes. And finally, Japanese vending machines will now offer free food and drinks in the event of a major earthquake or typhoon. According to the Japanese newspaper Maichi Shimbun, two machines have been installed in the western city of Eiko, which in the event of a heavy rain warning or a strong earthquake will unlock and make their contents free of charge. The machines will also contain emergency items and nutritional supplements and have been installed near buildings which are designated as evacuation shelters. Those are the week's food and drink headlines. Now back to Marcus. Thanks, Monica. You are with Monocle Radio. Back to Germany. Now beside Skorivorst and its great nightlife, Berlin is famous for its brunches. Not a wonder then that a restaurant concept focusing on all-day breakfasts has found success in the capital. Frühstück 3000 is based in Schöneberg and it was co-founded by Maximilian Wetzel. I met her at the restaurant. I'm running this place with two partners and we all have a fine dining background so we've all worked in high-end restaurants which are open during evening hours so the only time that we had to go out and eat good food was during the day Um, and there weren't many options except typical lunch places so we ended up saying that uh, we have to basically open a place ourselves where we would like to go in our free time. And after changing the jobs uh, for years and always starting fresh in new restaurants, you reach a point where you either start your own business or you leave gastronomy. (laughs) So So how would you describe the concept of this place? I can see the menu is quite long. So it's called Breakfrühstück means breakfast so it's very um, clear what it is about but we kind of wanted to keep it as open as possible and to really push the boundaries. Actually that's a really good point but let me just continue from that. You say that you wanted to push the boundaries and keep it open. What does that mean in practice? That means when you hear breakfast or frühstück especially in Germany because frühstück 
breakfast in Germany is something very particular what people expect. It's um, bread rolls, it's um, charcuterie, it's uh, meat and sliced cheese and some jam. That's basically it. Scrambled eggs, fried eggs. Um, and we just wanted to really go further than this and just open the horizon and also take the whole concept into uh, lunchtime and early afternoon time. Uh, because here it doesn't really matter for us. It was always um, the idea that breakfast is not something that you have in the morning. It's basically the first meal of the day, whenever there is. Tell me about the menu. What do you have over here? What do you think are the highlights? The highlights? Uh, chicken 3000, which is um, a cheddar waffle with uh, crispy fried uh, chicken and uh, spicy caramel sauce on top and we serve it with some pickled cucumbers and a little bit of salad so we have acidity that cuts through the rich caramel sauce so that's one of the the runners here one of the most popular dishes and the second one would be uh, roast beef focaccia so we have a home-baked uh, focaccia which is cut into a long slice then it's pan fried in a uh, butter again so butter is one of our most uh, important ingredients it comes with uh, truffle cream and very thin slices of uh, roast beef with some honey tomatoes and a fried egg on top we have coffee from a local roastery from bonanza coffee they are located in uh, kreuzberg not far from here and we use uh, Honduras dark roast. We have a typical coffee menu with uh, flat white, cappuccino, espresso, uh, americano. And we also have a um, extended drinks menu where we serve um, a selection of seven different cocktails and a weekly changing cocktail. So it ranges from um, Bloody Mary to espresso martini. We have uh, margarita at the moment with uh, salty plum and um, yeah that's that's basically the menu also we do have a big selection of uh, sparkling wines and champagne so the idea was to offer a menu uh, with food and drinks that ranges from a croissant with coffee to caviar and a bottle of Krug champagne so you can basically have anything here let's talk about how berlin has changed you talk about Krug champagne over there and caviar and i think that's something that hasn't been kind of it's not part of the stereotype of Berlin, at least. No, it's not. I think it's something more new that people are willing to spend more money on food also in the daytime because with the concept that we had here, we uh, had some criticism to face in the beginning when we were introducing the concept, which was always, the idea was always to have like expensive champagnes also on the menu. And uh, we had a lot of people telling us that nobody's going to drink in the morning, nobody's going to spend that much money in the morning, nobody's going to like go out for breakfast on the Wednesday at 12 o'clock. But it all kind of it all happened the way we uh, wanted it to. It's definitely a shift, but you can also see in how people consume. Um, day drinking is becoming a bigger thing, and. Uh, Drinking alcohol in the day for a lot of people, also parents with kids, <laughs> it's, it's a lot easier and more comfortable to do than going out at night. Now, Maxiliani, you have been in Berlin for, for quite a few years and you've seen how it has changed. What is your gut feeling about the future? Where is this city going to and what do you think the restaurant scene is going to be like in the future? 
I think Berlin has now reached a point where we can definitely compete with uh, places like uh, New York or Paris or uh, Copenhagen, for example, in terms of restaurants, because the quality at the moment is, is really high and uh, the new places that are opening are very uh, are very good quality and are very well thought through. So it's um, I think the time of amateurs opening restaurants is um, kind of over. I think people have now understood that it's not easy to open a restaurant just because you know you've been to restaurants a lot doesn't mean that you can run a restaurant yourself. So I think the quality has really stepped up. And the future, I actually see very positive. I think it's going into a direction where things have to be a lot more simple and easy to access. They have to be affordable in a way, so you have to find the middle way between something high-end and something of high quality, but still it needs to be affordable. Maximiliane Wetzel there, she's a co-founder of Frühstück 3000 restaurant in Berlin. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we're back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at 1500 in Washington, D.C. Also, remember our spin-off show Food Neighbourhoods, where we tour some of the world's tastiest destinations. And obviously you'll find many more reports on great hospitality from the brand new edition of Monocle magazine. I am Markus Hippi. The programme was researched by Monica Lillis and our studio engineer was Callum McLean. Once again, we finish this program with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here are Nena and Kim Wilde with Any Place, Anywhere, Anytime. Thanks for listening and until next week. <laughs>